decisions. We're continuing our Hosea series, God's Relentless Love, and this has kind of stopped and started several times this spring as we've had different people here. Uh, last week, as we looked at chapters 7 to 10, we, thought, we saw three lies about sin, how it can deceive us, how it can blind us to its destructive power. And again, that points out our great need for a Savior, our need for God. This morning, we're going to be in Hosea chapter, chapters 11 and 12. So if you want to turn there with me, they're page 708 in the Pew Bible, if you are using that. We're going to see God's loving kindness for his wandering people, Israel, and how he still offers that kind of love for us today. The major themes that we've been talking about in Hosea as we are wrapping up this book, we just have one more week in Hosea, we've seen Israel's rebellion. Prophet Hosea was writing specifically to the nation of Israel, and in this period of history, Israel and Judah are separated. They're a divided kingdom. Most of the prophets were writing to Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, but here is the, the northern tribes of Israel, and Hosea is calling to them God's message of judgment. There are just consequences for our sin, and there were consequences for their sin. God told them that judgment was coming, but then he reminded them of his relentless love, his mercy, his desire to see them redeemed and restored, to see them humble themselves and be reconciled to God. So that message from Hosea to the people of Israel, is still true for us today. We're not in their particular shoes or sandals, but we are people who easily wander away from the Lord, who quickly forget his blessings and quickly say, sin looks pretty good. I'm going to chase after that. I think that's going to be more fulfilling for me than God and his promises. And what he says are the things that I need. We're going to see in today's message God revealing three aspects of his amazing character, his patient kindness, his relentless love, and his unyielding holiness. God calls his people and calls us to repentance, and he calls us into a relationship with him. That's what God desires. Let me start off by reading the first couple of verses of Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. If you like to take notes, there's a uh, note sheet in your bulletin. And also, if you're online with us, good morning. I'm not forgetting you. Uh, you can look at the online bulletin, and you can also go to our website and follow along with the outline there. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yokes on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. This is a book of poetry. It's in the category of the minor prophets, but scripture is written in a lot of different literary styles. So as we're reading this particular book and most of the prophets, it's written in the style of poetry. 
Hosea, as prompted by God's Spirit, wrote in allegory. He wrote in picturesque speech, giving a lot of um, illustrations of what God is like, using common terms for us. The first one is God like a father with his child. And he says, I called my son out of Egypt. This is reminding them that you were brought out of slavery. I rescued you from slavery. I brought you into your land, your promised land. And just like a father, I was leading you by the hand. His description of having, you know, take, helping you walk with outstretched arms. Think about your sons or daughters who did that with you when, you were, when they were learning to walk. Um, I haven't had that joy yet with my grandson, but he's standing up on his own now. He hasn't taken his first steps yet, but we're going to get to see him this summer. And I hope by that point I can let him hold on to my fingers and, and see him take some steps. This reference, calling his son out of Egypt, is also a messianic reference. If you turn with me over to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. This is describing just after the wise men have come to visit. Now when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So as we read this in Hosea, I'm a, often I'm a person who doubts things. And I, want, I question things. So when I hear people say, oh yeah, here's, here's a reference to this, here's a reference to that, especially for unbelievers to say, you're just put, picking verses out of the air and saying, well, that's talking about Jesus, that's talking about Jesus, that's talking about Jesus. I had that same thought as I read this. Is this really talking about Jesus? But here we see in the Gospel of Matthew, he refers back to Hosea and says, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And I'm thankful that God does it for people like me who often just question and say, is this just a coincidence or is this really prophecy? Is it really there? So as we read our New Testament, we constantly have to be going back and reading the Old Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, we need to refer to the New Testament because that's the prophecy fulfilled. And we see God's word, how it fits together, how these writers over thousands of years in different places, we're all connected through the Holy Spirit, writing what God wanted for us to hear. We can trust God's word. We know it's true. And he invites us to study it. He invites us to look for those connections. But I'm especially thankful when he makes it really clear to skeptics to say, this is just what I was talking about in Hosea. I brought my son out of Egypt. King Herod was trying to kill Jesus. He was trying to eliminate any competition for the throne. And so God sent Joseph, Mary, and Jesus into Egypt to be safe. Back to Hosea. If you're new with us for the first time today, Ephraim is another um, name that God is just interchanging here for Israel. It's one of the northern tribes. So he just 
drops in Ephraim instead of Isaiah, instead of Israel at a number of times. So he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, and they didn't even know that it was me healing them. So again, just picture your toddler trying to walk along and, and you're there behind them, ready to catch them at every fall when they skin their knees. That's part of learning to walk, right? But God is there picking them up, healing them, and Israel is just saying, we don't really need you, God. We're doing fine. We're okay on our own. And God is that loving father saying, but I'm here with you. I want to keep you from danger. I want to keep you from harm. I want to keep you from chasing after these idols that are just going to ruin your life, ruin your heart. Verse 4, the illustration switches to a farmer. And he says, I led them with cords of kindness Bands of love. Those of you that have animals, whether it's a horse or a goat or something that you could lead, this is like that gentle leader that you're walking along with the animal and God is there guiding each step. It's bands of kindness. It's protecting the animal from going somewhere he shouldn't go. And that's part of God's love for us. And then he says that the yoke is eased so it won't be painful. It won't hurt your mouth. It won't hurt your shoulders and your neck as you're straining against it. And God bends down, down to the animal's level to provide food. God does, doesn't just throw out his blessings from heaven and just cast them out thinking, well, somebody's going to find them. He's bending down, coming to meet us where we are, to feed us and to care for us. Didn't he do that when he came to earth? God himself came in the form of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself and came to earth. He bent down and got down with us at our level. Just like God is describing the farmer who would bend down and help his animal feed. God bent down. He brought himself low to our level to be our savior, to walk where we walk, to experience life, to experience trials and temptations, to see just how hard it is to be human. God knows all of that. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus shares that. He's a high priest who knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. And as we come to him, he knows our temptations and our trials. Isn't that so good to hear this morning? That God is not just far away in what we picture as the pearly gates of heaven and a golden throne and someone just looking down at us thinking, you're not going to make it. You're terrible. You're horrible. I don't really care what happens to you. That's not God. God came down to meet us where we are, to love us. He was totally human, but he was still totally God. He never sinned. He never turned his back on God's word. In Matthew 20, 26, verses 26 to 28, Jesus described himself as the son of man and said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus describing himself he was the son of God, but he was also a son of man. And he loves you in that same tender, patient, kind way. 
He understands the weaknesses. He understands the things that you're facing right now. He understands what's going on with us and COVID, the difficulty of not seeing family, the the questioning of what's going to happen next all around the world. God understands that. And he offers a kind ear to hear our prayers, to hear our concerns. He says, bring your cares to me because I care for you. All of your worries, all of your doubts, all of your concerns, just bring them to me and I'll take care of them. Let's go on in Hosea, verses 7 to 8. We see God's relentless love again. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Oh, how can I say, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. God's relentless love. Here, again, in poetic speech, it sounds like God is wrestling with himself between love and judgment. How can I hand you over to your enemies, even though you deserve that? My heart, God says, recoils within me. It's shuddering because I have such compassion for you. It's warm. It's tender. Israel, I don't want to give up on you. Come back. Come back. That's what God is calling out to his loved ones at this point. Again, here it's the illustration of a father, of a farmer caring for someone. Earlier on, we saw the illustration of a marriage, of a husband chasing after his wife as Hosea sought Gomer to bring her back from sin and to accept her back. God is calling, come back. There is judgment coming. There are consequences for your sin. They are dire consequences. If you're not a believer, it's eternal separation from God. But if you are a believer and you're continuing in sin, you're going to feel the pains of those sins here on earth. You're going to have broken relationships. You're going to have pain and suffering because of that. And God is saying, come back to me. Is he saying that to you this morning? He knows your sin. He knows my heart. He knows my sin. He knows everything that we say, everything that we think and do. If you grew up in the church and maybe you trusted him at an earlier age, he knows just how far you may have strayed from him today. But his love is relentless. It never quits. Or maybe you need to start a relationship with him. You've never had one based on his grace and mercy. Maybe all you knew of God was that golden throne and just judgment. If I don't do all of these things, God will never accept me. He won't be happy with me. Maybe your relationship with him is just all about your sin and what you can do to pay for it. Can I do enough? Can I serve enough? Can I pray enough to take care of my sin? And God says, all of your good deeds, all of those things amount to just a pile of rags. It's only Christ's righteousness. It's only his blood that can take away our sins. So if you are looking for that kind of relationship with him, you need to go to Jesus. 
We can't compare ourselves to other people because we can always find someone that we think is a little bit worse than us, right? How many of us have said, well, at least I'm not a murderer, right? We go right to the top, like how many murderers do we know? I don't know too many. But we know people who are sinners and we can think about them and we can say, I'm a little bit better than that person. So if, if God has this scale, I'm probably over on this side of it. I'm going to tip the scale in God's favor, and he's going to say, come on in. I know you've messed up, but you've, you've done a lot of good stuff. Come on. His righteousness, his holiness won't allow that. Only the complete blotting away of our sins, only the complete clear list of our sins to be wiped clean, as the psalmist said, like snow, to be white as snow. All of my sins wiped away by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Only that can make us right with God. If you've never accepted his forgiveness, if you've never accepted this as a gift of salvation, instead of you working for it, then today should be the day. In verse 7 of Hosea 11, is it 7? No, it's 8. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are names that just roll off the tongue, right? I had to look them up because I couldn't remember what those names were. But those are the little cities around Sodom and Gomorrah. And as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, they were destroyed too. They had the same sin problems that Sodom and Gomorrah did. They were ready for judgment. They had been given every opportunity to repent, and they didn't. And so God is saying, I don't want to destroy you like these cities. They weren't the big ones. They were the little ones, the ones that were thinking, oh, we're probably okay. If we're comparing ourselves to Sodom and Gomorrah, we're not that bad. God's righteous standard is holiness, no sin at all. And so these cities also were destroyed. And while that seems harsh and unloving, Its purpose is to wake us up. God brings judgment into our lives. He lets us feel the consequences of our sin to wake us up and say, how far have I gone from God's path? Just how far will I keep going? And God is saying, come back. I'll forgive you. Come back. I want you to walk with me. Hebrews 12, verses I just went too far. 5 to 12. Have you forgotten the exhortations that address you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight the paths for your feet, so that what may be what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. God disciplines those he loves because he wants to see them back on the right path. And that's God's message to the nation of Israel. This discipline is there, but it's because I love you. I don't want it to be as harsh as it could be. Come back to me. Back in Hosea 11 verses 9 to 11. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and am not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God is holy. We've just been talking about that. He's righteous and is holy. And he doesn't want to carry out this burning anger. Again, remember, God's anger is righteous. It's because his standards, which are perfect, are not being met. Our anger is usually selfish. It's something I'm angry about because I didn't get my way, because someone got more than I got, because they're doing something to annoy me. That's my anger usually probably true for you too. But the only anger God shows is righteous anger. And people quickly point to Jesus and say, well, didn't Jesus get angry? He went into the temple and he threw over the tables and he chased the guys out with a whip. That was anger. Why can't I be angry at my kids for bothering me? Jesus' anger was over God's house being used to take advantage of people, to overcharge people for the sacrifices they, they were coming to bring to Jerusalem, to bring to the temple. And Jesus said, I've told you this before, cut it out. And he finally knocked over the tables and threw them out and said, this is not what the house of God is supposed to look like. Don't keep doing this. That's God's righteous anger. There was nothing personal for Jesus. He didn't have anything to gain by doing that. It was because... People are disobeying his father and taking advantage of those who were coming to seek a relationship with God. People coming to pray, people coming to bring sacrifices, and the money changers were charging double, triple the going rate. They were taking advantage. That's what Jesus was angry about. God says, I'm God, I'm not a man. He's not human with a desire to punish those who betray him. How many of you, like me, have withheld forgiveness because we want the person to feel bad? Have you ever had someone quickly come to you and say, I'm so sorry I did that, will you forgive me? And we say, oh, not yet. We may not say that out loud, but we're going to give them the cold shoulder. We're not going to talk to that person for a while. We want them to feel our pain. We want them to suffer just a little bit longer. That's not the way God forgives. And that's not the way God carries out justice. God says, if you come to me 
with a humble and what he says is contrite heart, desiring to change, then I will forgive you and I will make you whole again. God reminds us that he's not like us. He doesn't have those human selfish passions that would withhold forgiveness. He's righteous and he's holy, but he does have compassion and he does have great love because we are his children. He created us and his desire is that everyone would come back to him. He describes his holiness like a roaring lion, roaring and calling his cubs, come back to me. In Colossians 1, verses 20 to 22. If you want to turn there, you can. If you want to just listen, they're short. Through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus died on the cross. His sacrifice was so that we could be holy and blameless, so that we could stand before God and be acceptable. All of our sin wiped away. As we're standing here on earth, the Bible pictures it as Christ's righteousness on me. When I accept the gift of salvation, I have a robe that is pure white and it's Christ's righteousness. So when I come into God's presence and say, Heavenly Father, forgive me, He welcomes me into His presence. He can let me talk to Him and I can hear His voice through His word. I can have a relationship with Him because of Jesus' righteousness. And the Bible says when we die, or when we're called up in the rapture, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will have Christ's full righteousness. Our sinful bodies are completely changed and we'll be standing before God, before Jesus Christ, complete and whole. That's not until heaven. But while we're here, he's calling us to live a life that is holy, that's set apart for him, that's blameless. And God sees Christ's righteousness in the meantime. He sees our forgiveness through him. As God is holy, he calls us to be holy through that changed life in Jesus Christ. And finally, God calls us to repentance. In chapter 12, over in verse 6, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. As God, as a judge, is indicting Judah throughout chapter 12, he says in verse 2, The Lord has an indictment against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And he goes on to describe the story of Jacob, who was later called Israel, how he finally met God. After all of his sin, after all of his struggles, his lying, his deceit, with his family, with his brother and his father, all of those things that he did, he finally met the God of his father, Abraham and Isaac. And he finally committed, I'm going to follow you, God. 
by the help of your God, return to me. Hold fast to love and justice. Wait for God. This is the call for repentance. Israel, give up your idols. Give up your sin. Come back to me and I will save you. The God who brought you up out of Egypt, in verse 9, will save you. You will live in tents. You'll celebrate the feasts. You'll worship me again, just as you did before. And God is reminding again, I saved you before. I will save you again. And he tells them there is ultimate salvation. Not just me getting out of, you out of your problems time after time, but I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. God's son is going to be the final redeemer, the one who brings salvation once and for all. God's desire is not to punish Israel. It's not to punish Judah. It was not to punish us. His desire is that we would humble ourselves, confess our sin, or confess our sins, repent, which means turn around, go in the other direction, and be saved. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some might count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God calls us to be holy, to be set apart, just like he is holy. We're meant to glorify him in everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. That's his calling for us. Does that describe your life right now? Are your thoughts, your words, your actions showing people God's glory? Are they showing people what Jesus is like? When you're at home with your spouse, with your kids, your grandkids, whoever's at home with you, your family, are you showing them God's love and mercy, his patience, his forgiveness. Do you see yourself as a sinner who's been forgiven more than one who's sinned against and has to put up with everybody else's sin? I know when I reach some level of annoyance, it doesn't take anything to make me even more annoyed. Do you know that feeling? When you're just so frustrated with things, like a bird chirping outside, you lift the window, you're like, really, today? Leave me alone. And on a good morning, I would open the window and think, isn't that beautiful? Right? The same thing that brings joy brings annoyance when we see ourselves as sinned against more than as a sinner who needs God's forgiveness. When I'm looking at my family, my kids, when I'm looking at my wife and thinking, what else can she do to annoy me today? What else can she do wrong? That only happens like once a year, but on those days, am I thinking, what have I done? Where's my sin in this? You've heard that every argument has two sides, right? How often do I only see my side? I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. The whole world is wrong, and I'm right. Anybody else share that problem? I don't see my sin because what we saw last week, sin lies. It deceives us into thinking that it's really not that big a deal. 
Everybody else's is worse than mine, and they should just put up with me because of how great I am. My mom tells me that all the time. Thanks, Mom. But it's good to have people around me who sometimes tell me, you're not that great. What you're doing right now is sinful. We need people like that in our lives. Sometimes it's our spouse. Sometimes it's our best friend, an older brother or younger sister, somebody who's going to be brutally honest with you and say, you're being a jerk. Lovingly. What you're doing is sinful. The way you're acting, the way you're treating whoever it is. We need people who can be honest with us like that. Will you give your family, your spouse, your closest friends permission to say, you're off here, this is wrong? Do you want to hear that? Usually those things come out when you're in the heat of an argument, right? And we're both listing all of each other's flaws, and that doesn't help anybody because we're just in battle mode. Right? We're trying to win. But when we can build relationships where we can tell each other lovingly, right? Scripture says, speak the truth in love. Build one another up, encourage one another. But we have to be honest and to be able to say, you are wrong here. This is sinful. How can I help you with this? That's what we need to do as individuals, as a church, discipling, loving each other, caring for each other, helping each other show what Jesus is like. Are you aware of God's loving kindness, his patience, his forgiveness, and his mercy to you? When I see myself as a sinner and I see all that God has done for me and how he's forgiven me, then I should be able to turn around and show that to other people because I'm thinking, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for treating me the way I really don't deserve. Can I treat others that way? Can I be loving and patient and kind? Just letting your love, your patience, your kindness flow out of me so I don't have to try and manufacture it. I don't have to try and make it up like grin and bear it. That's not what he's asking us to do. He's saying, be so overwhelmed by how much I love you that that just pours out of your life. Are you extending that love, that forgiveness and mercy to those around you? And finally, just the reminder, if you don't have this relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know him as a loving father who's forgiven you, who cares for you, then let today be the day. Come talk to me after the service if you're online. Connect with me through the church. Know God. Love him. Because of his relentless love, how much he cares for you, he's chasing after you and saying, either come back or come to me for the first time. He wants you to know him. Scripture says he's patient, not willing that any should perish. That's God's desire, is that none would go to hell. That was created for Satan and his demons. And he's not desiring to see any people go there. He offers the gift of salvation. We have to humble ourselves enough to say, I need this. I need you, Jesus. I can't do this on my own. Are you willing to say that today? Because our God is holy and perfect, his justice requires judgment for sin. 
It's only by his mercy and grace that he offered his son as payment for our sins. His relentless love, his loving kindness offers a relationship that will bring healing for your pain, peace for your soul, and satisfaction in knowing the one who created you to be with him now and for eternity. We're not going to close in a song today. We're going to close in prayer. Thank you again, ladies, for leading us in worship this morning, but bow your heads with me if you would. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day that we could come together, that we could lift up our voices in praise of you, our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us, the one who created us, the one who cares for us. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to come down and live at our level, to live as a human being who was still God, who was still capable of offering up his own life as a sacrifice for us. Thank you for the salvation that we don't deserve, but that you, you offer to us as a gift because of your mercy and your loving kindness. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.